Hello, and welcome back to On War, the podcast. Continuing the theme of last episode, Austin and I explore another idea within the school of realism, the application of game theory to international relations. Can leaders and nations be reduced to players of a strategic game, or does this idea conceal more than it reveals? Oh, finally got the boxes unpacked, um, just in time to say happy birthday to us. It's kind of hoping to have a cake, but I've been unpacking boxes. Uh, but we're continuing on our, our general series of ideas within realism. This will be sort of the last kind of taster. We might come back to this later on. There's a, a lot of avenues we could go down here. Uh, but we're just going to do this episode on game theory because it's one of those ideas that kind of, I think it's one of the purest applications of the some of the core aspects of particularly neorealism. And it's sort of, it, it's a great way of, Dividing an audience, if you like. Uh, game theory is everything the realists say international relations should be, and everything everyone else says it's impossible to be. So I think that's uh, th- that's why this episode's here. Plus, it's a little bit of a chance for us to spend our podcast birthday uh, kicking some economists while they're down, which is probably our favorite thing to do. In all honesty, uh, if some listeners remember... They did start it back in the Greater Grievance episode, so I don't feel too yeah. bad for them. We're just, we're just here to, to keep throwing the punches. Uh, so game theory itself, uh, it comes from economics originally, and it's originally pub, uh, published by a guy called John von Neumann in 1944, but it's rapidly applied to international relations uh, a little bit later by Flood and Drescher, who were working for, of course, the Rand Corporation uh, in 1950. Uh, the basic idea of game theory is that a situation, a competition, can be formalized in a structure um, much like a game. Not necessarily a game like you might play Snakes and Ladders, but a more formalized kind of logical process. The archetype of a simple game is the prisoner's dilemma. And this is this is a classic thought experiment that's, that's thrown out. And we'll start with this because it gives a good idea of what it's all about. The basic idea is you've got two members of a criminal gang who are arrested for a crime, for example, a theft. Each prisoner is put in solitary confinement with no means of communicating with the other prisoner. The prosecutor doesn't quite have enough evidence to convict the pair, though. So what he does is, hoping to get at least one of them, he goes to each one with a deal. Rat out on the other guy, I'll let you off, and the other guy will serve more time. So he gives this um, proposal to both prisoners, and the way you model the game is sort of in, a, in a, uh, a matrix or a grid where you've got prisoner A and prisoner B. If they stay silent, if neither of them does anything, both of them will get one year jail time on a, a lesser charge. If one betrays the other and the other doesn't speak out, the betrayer will go free, and the guy who gets betrayed will serve the full three years for the theft. But if they both betray each other, then they'll get a reduced sentence of the full term of two years. Because no prisoner can know, know what the other will do, but no, but has a good idea that a similar offer is going to be made, the best possible outcome for each prisoner is to betray and have the other one stay silent, not to rat. On the other hand, if you stay silent, you risk two extra years. It might be better if you both stay silent, but you don't know what the other guy's going to do. Therefore, the rational choice, and this is the cornerstone of game theory, it's all about rationally maximizing your utility. 
um, is the term that economics, ec economists use, uh, of always picking with the information available to you the most optimal outcome with, you know, on the basis of whatever game you can construct. So in this example, no rational prisoner would do anything other than betray. As you can imagine, starting a plot to apply this, there are a number of issues with this. Uh, the most simple one I can think of is that uh, people who rat, particularly criminals and gangs who rat on their fellow gang members, tend to have other consequences not necessarily captured by the game. Yeah, well, I mean, also, as any sociologist, philosopher, or psychologist will tell you, there's also a great deal of human in this actual exchange that isn't reflected in the game. Now, this is deliberate, right? Because what th this theory, what game theory is trying to do is take a very complex interaction and rationalize that back down to a mathematical formula, a game that you can play at home, basically, that you can determine a positive outcome from with certainty. And that's why, of course, it doesn't factor in things like you could get killed for ratting. Um, or the fact that human beings have a tendency to do things that are irrational. But there are also some scholarly problems with this game. Yeah, so The Prisoner's Dilemma is, uh, is quite a simple game. Um, it's often called a, a simple or a discrete game. It's a once-off that's played, and then it's over. And even if you're embracing the full work of game theory, obviously not all situations can be captured that way. So there's another type of game, a sort of uh, a sequential game style, which is a different way of modeling the same sort of idea, where you create mini-games sort of linked together in branching decisions uh, as part of a much larger meta-game. So, again, a classic example of this is a game of chicken. You have two guys driving a car towards a cliff to impress a girl. At each moment, they play a game where their choice is either to keep driving or to jump out. This is sort of the, the mini-game here. If they jump out before the other guy, they're chicken and they lose the girl but live. If they stay in too long, they go off the cliff and die. What they're trying to do in, in the context of the larger game is to live, but to be the last guy to jump out. And so the metagame is this larger contest of each sequential decision. The most optimum strategy being outlast the other dude, then jump off. This introduces another idea of sequential games, which is a first mover either advantage or disadvantage. And in different games, it'll be the guy who, who or the person who makes a choice um, either has an advantage because he, he or she is, is shaping the way the game will be played, or in the game of chicken, the first mover is actually creating themselves a disadvantage. Because if they make the choice to jump, the other player knows that they can then jump safely and win the game. Now, if they choose not to jump, that choice still tips off the other player as to know what's going next and has to affect their choices to jump or, or maybe die. Both of these games can be solved. The classic um, way of finding it is, is, is by finding um, either Nash equilibria or Bayesian equilibria um, and by using matrices for simple or discrete games or a tree-style diagram for sequential games. But really, to go much more than the detail we've already done, we'd need to put in slideshows, and frankly, we're not economists. The core, I guess, what we're trying to get here is that um, at all, both of these games is, is a presupposition of a purely rational actor, uh, an individual that, when playing the game, knows they're playing a game, which is very important, um, that they're, the term is strategically competent, even if they don't know all the information, that they're strategically competent, and thus 
will, based on the information available to them, make the best choice to maximize their utility. But that's not how it actually works in practice, of course, which is because they may think they have a grasp of the information they have, but as we'll go into later on, the information provided even in these games, even in game theory's core exercises, is not perfect. And therefore, even the most strategically competent individual, state, player, can make mistakes or make poor decisions from a strategic point of view or irrational decisions from their point of view based on assumed knowledge or incorrect knowledge. So how do we apply this to IR? Austin, you've been digging into the Cold War here. It's a classic example. Well, it's the quintessential example. Of course, this is what's happening when uh, game theory is invented. So it's not a coincidence that at the height of its influence... And, of course, at the height of the influence of the scientific model of IR, um, being realism and various forms of realism, it, that was during the Cold War. In hindsight, when we look at the Cold War from, you know, the comfort of armchairs and, you know, the modern 21st century, we realise that the danger in the Cold War actually turned out to have very little to do with nuclear weapons. Instead, the near misses we had during the Cold War were largely a result of human brinkmanship right which is when a basically a game of chicken occurs they're playing a sequential game right and and game theory should account for this even the very concept of mutually assured destruction which you know listeners at home were probably aware that alistair and i think is a little ridiculous mad even but this basic premise of this and what led it to be assumed as rational was game theory right because it supports a the concept the paradigm if you will of this being a sequential game. In a world that's comprised of rational actors who all know that they're playing a geostrategic game with rules, and if you look at the documentation that was coming out during the Cold War, everybody thought they were playing the same game. And this is, of course, why we end up with things like Exercise Able Archer, for example, in 1983, where the Americans were playing with one rulebook and the Russians didn't realise they were playing a game, and we came within a couple of hours of nuclear war. But this is also an example where the game failed at a point because because up until that point, uh, when the phone call actually finally went through, Abel Archer had the Russians convinced it was a prelude to war. So if anything, their delays uh, when modelling it, at least in the classical sense, uh, that was a that was a less optimum choice. It was a delay that cost them time, cost them strategic positioning. But again, this brings in the human factor. They didn't want conflict now some games do try to model that position but it's an imperfect modeling it's it's trying to abstract intuition uh, human morality into numbers and that's a very difficult thing to do i don't think you can yeah and particularly when you consider we're not just modeling the morality of one individual a state is a gestalt organism it's comprised of thousands of decision makers across multiple departments and military um, organizations and so the cold war and the defensive initiatives that were um, created to reduce the influence of the other side's nuclear weapons can be seen as a series of mini-challenges, mini-games, where each state builds their arsenal at each checkpoint. That then encourages the other, who is benefiting from the first mover's disadvantage, to come up with a countermeasure, be that a an additional safeguard or an additional deterrent system, or, as in the case in reality, to simply increase their own stockpile of nuclear weapons. 
Of course, what we know now, what they didn't know at the time, was a lot of the lot of the game itself, at least in the West, was based on an imperfect understanding of what the Soviets' capabilities and intentions actually were. Amidst this backdrop, we see again the brinkmanship mindset. And we see that it filters down from your high-level strategic policymakers. It's really easy in when you look at things like realist theory and game theory to think of a state as a single individual, which is ironic, of course, because realists don't think the individuals really matter on the world stage. But anyway, so we see the brinkmanship filter down to senior military officials and command staff, which leads to both sides engaging in these dangerous mini-episodes of chicken, where within the larger metagame, you had another campaign of mini-games to kick off. Now, examples of this would be the Cuban Missile Crisis, the installation of Patriot missile batteries in Turkey, and the US practice, my personal favourite, which Alistair is aware of, um, of the US's decision to repeatedly have their nuclear-armed submarines let the Russians follow them for a while, and then vanish completely off their radar before showing up off the coast of Anchorage and scaring everyone to death. How they thought that was sensible, or even remotely hilarious at the time, is beyond me, but from my perspective, it's a clear example of the danger of this brinkmanship. There's also the accidents that come across that the game doesn't really account for. Um, I'm thinking here particularly of uh, the September 1983 false alarm incident. Yeah, so about the same time as Able Arch is happening... Um, you have this incident where the, a Russian early warning detection system detected the launch of a single U.S. nuclear missile aimed at the Russian mainland. Now, the doctrinal response was, of course, to alert high command, and the Russians would have engaged, theoretically, in a retaliatory strike. Fortunately for the world, uh, the guy who was on duty that day had been involved in designing the system itself and he was a rational individual actor, as opposed to his state, which wasn't acting very rationally at the time. Um, and he thought, well, that doesn't make any sense, does it, logically, for the US to launch a single missile against Russia. And so he ignored the warning. He ignored it a second time when it appeared that the US had launched two missiles at them. Of course, the first one hadn't landed at this point, so you can forgive him for being sceptical. He was reprimanded um, and jailed while an investigation was took place. Of course, the investigation found that it was the reflection of some clouds and birds that uh, fooled the Russian early detection system into a false positive, uh, which almost, of course, led, despite all the examples of brinkmanship, to nuclear war. Mm. It should be noted that he did actually get reprimanded, but the, the, the final report on this incident was that he insufficiently documented his actions. Uh, to which I have this wonderful quote, which I will not ham up a Russian accent for, I promise. But he explains it as, because I had a phone in one hand, an intercom in the other, and I don't have a third hand. I guess the Cold War is an easy target for game theory. It, it, it's it's a good example because it comes up at this, like, this is what game theory is originally sort of being applied to in international relations. In the 1950s, international relations in the US and in Rand is the Cold War. That's Every, what everyone's looking at. It's all anyone's interested in. Lots of different ways it can be applied, but that's, I mean, it's, it's a paradigm-defining conflict, really. Particularly because in the early 1950s, when you're seeing this uh, theory emerge, 
What Rand and other US uh, and Western IR scholars are trying to determine is a model to make everyone feel safer and more secure in determining who, why, and how nuclear weapons would proliferate. Because, of course, the Russians are starting to acquire a large stockpile. The Chinese have a nuclear weapon by that point. But for any theory to hold its weight, hold its water, so to speak, uh, it has to be able to be applied to more than one scenario. Now, game theory, of course, has been taken across to the corporate world and to the psychological world in various forms. But it has also been applied to the First World War. And I think Alistair has something to say on the matter. Yeah, so this is something I have, I've sort of discovered through the readings and doing my own little research for this episode. Uh, there's a, an academic by the name of um, Zagare, uh, who's been using game theory quite a lot in the past 10 years or so um, to look at not just the First World War, but also the uh, diplomatic conditions leading up to the First World War. And if game theory is something you're, you're interested in looking at, I, I would recommend you pick up a copy of his book, um, The Games of July, Explaining the Great War, published in uh, 2011. Because uh, it, that's what this is uh, whole book is about. But I wanted to pick out an early centerpiece in this, which is his Tri-Party Crisis Game. Uh, it's designed to model deterrence, extended deterrence and crisis bargaining between two major powers and a third middle or lesser power. Now, he uses it in, in the First World War, and if you want to read his examples, I encourage you to look at the readings, but I'll put on my own one here in World War Two. So, our three players are Germany, Great Britain, and Poland. It's laid out as a three-player sequential game with a challenger, a defender, and a protege. In this case, Germany is our challenger. They're making demands. Great Britain is our second great power, the defender, and the protege, the lesser power, is Poland. The game starts with the challenger making some demand of the protege. They can choose not to, but then the status quo is preserved, the game ends. But they demand some concession from the protege, in this case Poland. If the protege concedes, it's game over, and the challenger wins the concession. However, if they don't, then the defender comes in, and they can make a choice, support the protege or not. This is where it gets, gets, gets complicated, so let's actually play out the real history for a second. Germany demands Polish land, and Poland, the protege, holds firm and refuses. Great Britain, the defender, then must either support or not support Poland. If Poland gets no support, then it either surrenders, realigns, um, and gives up the land, or gets invaded and loses, because the protege in this game is always lower power than the challenger. If Great Britain supports, then Germany can either back down, that is, the challenger concedes, game over, or presses on, and a conflict occurs. So in real life, you trace the path to yourself, it's easy. Germany demands, Poland says no, Great Britain offers support, Germany presses on, and then we get World War II. So on the face of it, this model seems to work really, really well, and there are some impl interesting implications from it. Uh, Zagari's analysis of this game he suggests that the, the true mover and shaker, or the most interesting person in this game, is actually the protege, because the best outcome for them, in order, sort of just, sort of best to worst, is that the challenger never um, demands anything, but that doesn't really count. The challenger concedes after a defender supports conflict, which the defender and the protege might win, right? So the, the protege actually doesn't mind necessarily conflict if they can win with support. And conflict only occurs with support of the defender. 
and then finally if they lose through either being invaded or being forced to realign that's not good for them for the defender however it's a little bit different because they'd rather win a war than lose the protege without one particularly if the protege just surrenders and thus lose an enormous amount of face and also strategic position there's an implication here that the defender has some strategic position in play this means that in terms of the, the protege's position the protege actually benefits from being a little bit disloyal a little bit toey a bit saying germany's really scary man um, if they make these demands and you don't support me i don't know quite what's going to happen so the game itself you know it's, it's an interesting one it's complicated and it applies itself quite well i think to that circumstance but again we can start to see some problems first of all um where the hell is russia a three-player game in and he uses this in in the first world war and unconditional before that as well what we're talking about here is a very complicated european situation there are never just two or three players in europe at this time period there's a half dozen major and minor ones and it's very hard to build a very complicated game that captures all of those interactions Actually, one of the more interesting ones, if you want to look at how when a protege really steps out of, uh, well, steps out of line, and B's toey, as Alistair points out, is Indonesia under Suharto. Um, one of the reasons uh, that Indonesia under Suharto was able to gather the amount of power that it was, was of course that it was playing both sides. And it would get some contracts off the Russians, and they'd give some to the Americans, and they'd get arms from both and support from both. Um, of course, it didn't really work out in the end, and there was a massive, bloody anti-communist, in theory, purge, and then of course Sahato eventually fell. But you can see how you get that occur. What's also really interesting, more so I think than any sort of specific example, what I think is more interesting, however, than simply giving you another example at home, is to draw your attention to our episode, our last episode, where we were talking about neorealism, specifically offensive neorealism. And you can see how the realist roots and underpinnings of game theory are starting to come through a little bit here, right? What does the defender really lose? Well, they lose utility, they lose latent power, and they lose face, which is another aspect of latent power. Also, if they lose a war, by definition, they've also lost a fair bit of their military power. So you can see how power really is part and parcel of all these games we're looking at here, right? The reason that the second mover has advantage in second, sorry, in sequential games is that the first mover is giving up a level of their agency. They're giving up a level of their power to the second mover by taking that first move. If you want another example, and we're running out of time, so we won't go into it here, but go back to our episode on the great game, the competition in Central Asia between Russia and, and uh, Great Britain, and look for another gentleman there who winds up being discounted by both sides, but winds up being the the, the most interesting and certainly the, the only real winner out of that particular uh, scenario just after the second um, Anglo-Afghan war. But in general, there are some, I think, some core issues that really we really want to bring, bring to light here with uh, using game theory in international relations. The first one, and the biggest for me, and the biggest for me in economics as well, is that human beings, as has been alluded to constantly throughout this, are not rational utility maximizers. We're just, we're not. Time and time again, ideology, morality, narrative, all of these things have, wind up having a much larger uh, impact 
on people's conscious decisions. And then most of all, their unconscious incompetence is completely discounted by any game that assumes strategic competence, even in the face of incomplete information. Some examples, go back and look at our episodes on greed versus grievance or liberal war. There are so many times that this happens. It's also worth noting here that a rational utility maximizer, in other words, an artificial intelligence running a game like this, knows knows deep in their code, deep in its code, deep in its bones, whatever the word you want to use, that its information is incomplete. Now, you can tell a human that their information is incomplete. But psychologically, once they start to gain confidence in the game itself, that incompleteness of information starts to disappear from the back of their mind and they start to make mistakes. That's just part of being a human. And we have to remember, and this is what game theory discounts, that again, as I said earlier, a state is a gestalt body of bureaucrats. And a military is a gestalt body of soldiers. Now, within that gestalt body, there are very smart people, there are very savvy people, and there are very average people. And so you have to consider that. And rational actor theory and game theory itself doesn't really. There's another factor of humanity too that I think is interesting because it's presented as a counter game, um, the ultimatum game. And this has been supported through a number of different um, empirical experiments. But human beings display or tend to display a tendency towards cooperation, but more importantly, a tendency to be altruistic punishers. That is, we'll forego benefit ourselves uh, to stop someone else being unfair. And, and this is modeled in, in the ultimatum game. In this, there are two players. One uh, player A is given a sum of money to share with the other player B. He gets to decide what that share is. He can say anything. If player B accepts the officer or the offer, they proceed with the split. But if player B rejects it, then both players get nothing. Now, straight game theory would suggest that player B should always accept a positive gain. It's a net gain no matter what the proportion is, and they don't have any control over player A's kind of response. However, the experiments show that people will usually reject anything below at least a 25% share. That's really important to note, and this has all sorts of implications. In the world of international relations, in the international sphere, you can see this kind of behavior in the evolution of norms, particularly around, for example, non-proliferation and the use of particular chemical, nuclear, biological weapons, other types of weapons as well. That being said, it's still a contrived game, so the situation is always more complex than that anyway, but it's another core behavior that would push back against the assumptions of human nature that uh, game theory and rational choice theory make. And while, obviously, uh, academics are still working within game theory and it is still a prominent realist theory, it's actually been taken up and really expanded upon by our colleagues in the organisational behaviour field. And specifically, one I will refer uh, listeners' attention to is a game, an exercise that's played with organisational behaviour students, which demonstrates this ultimatum effect. Basically, there are two players in this game as well. The first is given the role of a coffee supplier. The second is given the role of a hotel purchaser for a local hotel chain. Now, each player is given separate instructions and background information. This background information includes a summary of the situation and a summary of the market that contains both objective facts 
and subjective mistakes and inaccuracies, but it's all presented as fact to simulate that imperfect knowledge. Now, along with these instructions, each player is given a chart which tells them how many points they get. And they get more points as an individual the harder deal they drive. Therefore, what happens in reality, and, and when most people play this game, is each player will try and negotiate. They'll try and negotiate based on the situation, based on their background knowledge. For instance, the hotel uh, purchaser knows that there is another supplier in the works who is having trouble with their supply routes, so that's why they might want to replace them, but there's always a fallback. Whereas the coffee supplier knows that their coffee is somewhat substandard. What often happens, though, is the players will negotiate in order to get the best deal. And only after the game is over do they learn that, in fact, if they'd worked cooperatively, they would have scored a higher overall total points. Now, the point of this game is to teach business students and organizational behavior students about this effect that Alice is talking about, about that altruistic punishment behavior, but also about how sequential game theory works in a business setting. And it's interesting to consider as IR uh, scholars and enthusiasts. One of the big problems, of course, with sequential game theory, which Alice is talking about, that you see when you run repeated versions of the same game over an extended period or to try and uh, prove your experimental formula, is that you can never stop the actors from gaining knowledge that they didn't have, whether that's correct knowledge or simply assumed knowledge. So... Most IR situations in real life are simultaneous. There is no ability to determine certainly what the other person's thinking or the other person knows or how much of what you think you know is accurate. And that affects how people move and how people react, particularly as players in a game. If we return to our previous example, you can see why sequential games or series of mini-games sort of fall apart once the player gains access to the rules or gains access to knowledge about how the game is working. Uh, for example, if those two players play the hotel supplier and the coffee game, game again, well, now they know that the best thing to do is go for a cooperative solution, and they simply do that. Now, have they modelled reality? No, but they've learned how to play the game, and that's the issue that we have with these sort of games. Now, States have noticed this, right? Because again, states aren't stupid. And so what we see in the immediate post-World War II period is the beginning of the emergence of what's called an opposition force, or the Australians and the Americans, we both call it Op4. And the goal of this, these forces, which are forces of the state's own military whose role is to play an evolving and unknown enemy force in exercises, is to ensure that war games... And theoretical exercises that apply game theory never become stale. That they're always challenging the players in that game or the actors to work within a simulated environment by simulating that unknown knowledge. Interestingly enough, the Australian Army's Op 4 is called the Missourian Army. And if you look in the show notes, you'll see an unclassified version of the several hundred page doctrinal document that the Australian army maintains to govern the behavior and ensure the consistency of their Missourian uh, Op4 combatants. Within that structure, of course, the Op4 
will challenge and evolve and do various things. Um, Alish and I have both heard strange and wacky tales of what Op4s do. I'd encourage you to go have a look at some of the stuff on the internet. We don't have time to do it here. The other point about repetition here is that, and I want to take this back a little bit, is when players think they've learned the nature of the game and, and they really haven't. And this is an interesting point that just sort of needs to be highlighted. To take this back to the World War II example, um, when Great Britain is playing this game with Germany and Poland, um, there were other there were other previous examples of this game being played. If we want to group it in a repeating sequential game of the lead up to World War II, uh, with the Austrian Anschluss, the remilitarization of the Rhineland, and then the occupation of the Sudetenland and then Czechoslovakia itself, all of which was being was shaping the various actors' opinions and positions. Interestingly, Neville Chamberlain's one at this point is he'll back down, he'll back down, he'll back down. So he hasn't even learnt the game properly, let alone anything else. It's still excluding Russia, France, and the United States and a whole bunch of other aspects. But if you want to take the tripartite crisis game and even build it up a little bit more, you can apply it to history and see very clearly that human beings shouldn't be assumed to be as strategically competent as game theories require. And I think it's important to highlight Alistair's first point in that, which is there is a beguiling quality to for policymakers in game theory because game theory purports to provide a mathematical certainty to predicting or at least explaining state behavior within situations right it's a game it's a mathematical formula two plus two equals four all the time unfortunately for those of us who work within the critical school um, of terrorism studies like alistair and i both do uh, or if you work in post-colonial security studies for example you'll have come across the, the concept that all most scholars do, which is that policymakers want certainty. And when you look at international security or human behavior, there often isn't a certainty you can give to the level that game theory purports to do. Unfortunately, uh, we end up with game theory as a result of that, and that's why game theory remains attractive. Yeah, it, what game theory allows you to do is go to a policy uh, decision maker who's being confused with all us critical theorists and say, no, I've got the idea, and here it is, the numbers don't lie, which then they base their decision on and doesn't work. But the core here for me, I think, and we'll, we'll close up here because we're running out of time. For me, the core is that game theory is dependent on choices. And as a final point, when we look at a lot of modern conflicts, and particularly the most nasty ones, these are conflicts of nationalism, religion, of ethnic divides, for people in these conflicts, there is often no longer a question of choice. The actors there are not playing a game of politics or strategic exchange. In their minds, at least, it's a struggle for their extant being or for religious truth or even righteous victory. There is no choice in their mind. If they can't make a choice, they're not a determined player. It's not a game anymore. Do you have any closing comments, Austin? Well, Alistair sort of knows my opinion on game theory as a whole. Um, my running sort of statement on, on game theory is that it's what happens when you pay people to make a complicated mathematical model to explain the behavior of gestalt organizations of people with no input from philosophy or psychology or sociology or any of the things that let us understand how people actually function. And on that note, we've sadly run out of time. For now, this concludes our short foray into realism in international relations, but if you have any thoughts on the topic of today's episode, 
we'd love to hear from you. You can post in the comment section below, or even better, on our subreddit. You can find the link, as well as those to our show notes, Patreon, and social media pages in the doobly-doo below. In the next episode, we jump to the other side of the theoretical pond, with an exploration into the critical school of international relations and security studies. Until then, thank you all for listening, and good night.